Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to the Long Read from Stuff. This week's episode is called Why Wellington Should No Longer Be the Capital of New Zealand. It's written by Stuff National Correspondent and longtime Long Read friend Charlie Mitchell, who joins me now. Hey, Charlie. Hey. Charlie, I love it when the title of a story absolutely says what the story is about, which this does. Why should Wellington no longer be the capital of New Zealand? Yeah, so there's, um, I mean, there's a few different reasons that I, that I sort of explore in the piece. One that I really think is worth focusing on is looking at why the decision was made in the first place and asking if the criteria that was used back then in 1865 make sense to us now, nearly 160 years later. Um, and in my view, they don't. So, so the argument back then was that Wellington was central, and by having a capital that was central, it sort of split power between the South Island and Auckland, which were these two battling population centres at the time. That does not really apply today. There's this concept called the geographic median, which is basically where the the median person sort of lives in terms of the geography. So half people live north of that, half people live south. That point is basically near Hamilton now. So there's been this massive population shift northwards over the last century and a half. And when you sort of look at the criteria that were used back then, the decision was effectively made by these three Australian politicians who were sort of chosen as part of this inquiry to choose where the capital should be. And they had these sort of list of very vague criteria that they were asked to, to measure this new capital on. It's not actually clear why they chose Wellington at all, because their conclusion was sort of in the form of this very brief letter. It didn't go into any detail about why Wellington was chosen, why the other sites were not chosen. And so we don't actually have any great understanding of why Wellington was the capital to start with. And of course, the long-standing issue, really, in terms of Wellington, is its precarity. It's on seven different fault lines within its city boundaries, and two of them are particularly dangerous. So Wellington is not only just a relatively at-risk city, it's it's actually the most imperiled city in the country in terms of earthquake hazard. It's sort of a combination of those sort of arguments, as well as some sort of economic and social issues that are sort of long-standing in Wellington that make it not particularly ideal for a capital if we were looking at it fresh today. One of the other things you raise in this that is interesting and, and likely to raise some hackles, I think, is cultural reasons, for lack of a better word. Wellington's identity and identity crisis, if you will, what it is, what it wants itself to be, isn't necessarily compatible with the public service element of being the capital city, yeah? Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the sort of fundamental questions, at least for me personally, when I think of a capital city, is that it should be able to adequately house the public servants that are forced by situation to live there. And it's no secret that Wellington has struggled with its housing infrastructure, its three waters infrastructure. It's a very unaffordable city, particularly for young people. And this isn't a problem that's unique to Wellington, but it's really sort of the sort of combination of the, the infrastructure deficit and the poos and wheeze running down the streets and, and these sort of like iconic images of, of Wellington in the last few years in particular. It's just sort of it's sort of merged in this way that it seems like it's very difficult for Wellington to um, recover from that. And, and, you know, those are temporary things. They can be fixed, of course. But, I mean, it's, you know, a capital sort of inherently represents the country. And to have a, a capital city that is 
frankly, fairly dysfunctional in terms of doing the, the sort of basics of, of running a city is it's not particularly good for the country as a whole either. Um, and, and so that is one potential reason in combination with others, um, not by itself, for perhaps moving the capital to a city that is better suited to housing the public servants that have to live in that city. And not to like keep dumping on Wellington here, but as we record this, I can see you live streaming in our Wellington studio, looking straight out onto Featherston Street, and the weather sucks by the look of it. It's not great. Um, yeah, I, I'm not that cynical about Wellington's weather. I think it gets a bad rap. On paper, it's not that much worse than anywhere else. I don't. I think it sucks, and that's a good enough reason for it not to be the capital. Thank you, Charlie. Now, here is Dominic Harris reading Charlie's story, Why Wellington Should No Longer Be the Capital of New Zealand. A long time ago, when the first batch of colonists squeezed through the Cook Strait and into Te Whanganui Atara to occupy land they had bought sight unseen, some of Wellington's first non-Māori residents were visibly upset. They had been lied to. Popular images of the new settlement advertised widely in the UK, had exaggerated the amount of flat land, the size of the harbour, and the navigability of the Hutt River. Some were under the impression bananas would grow there. It wasn't accidental. It was the result of a propaganda campaign imagined by Edward Gibbon Wakefield while he sat in prison for abducting a child to be his wife. The foundation of modern Wellington was, to put it bluntly, a scam by the New Zealand Company, a group of property speculators, to sell land it didn't own. Its sloppiness was due, in part, to haste. It had been expected by the company that their new town would become the capital, wrote the historian David Hamer in an essay published in The Making of Wellington. It was certain that whoever owned the land on which it, the capital, was located, stood to make a large profit... Many colonists, even those who were deceived, came to love Wellington due to, or in spite of, its bracing winds, its harsh topography, and its, at times, thrilling precariousness. But the city did not prosper. Auckland was made the capital, while Wellington was ravaged by one earthquake and nearly finished off by another. By the early 1860s, its ailing economy relied on whaling, producing flax doormats, and the belief that its ascent to capital status was inevitable. The gambit worked. Wellington, a dying city, achieved its founder's great hope. It became the capital. More than 150 years later, this status is rarely questioned, let alone threatened. It might come up as a cheeky question at a press conference, which the Prime Minister of the day will gamely bat away, or as a fleeting topic of discussion following a natural disaster. The idea is treated as a passing whimsy. Capital cities don't move, we think. They're gifts from our ancestors, immovable, like Maunga in the breeze. But why shouldn't we consider it? Numerous countries have moved, or plan to shift, their capital cities for economic, environmental or cultural reasons. Capital status is a pact between a nation's citizens and one of its population centres. It requires the city safeguard the country's civil service and protect its national cultural artefacts in exchange for the economic subsidy 
that comes with housing the seat of government. It is not a birthright, and what can be given can be taken away. So, in the spirit of the new year and new beginnings, here is one case for why Aotearoa New Zealand should make its own new beginning. It should relocate its capital city. Choosing Wellington, right in the middle of New Zealand, as the country's capital, wasn't completely irrational. In the 1860s, an increasing majority of New Zealand's population lived in the South Island, but Auckland retained significant cultural and political power. This is a classic dilemma. Two big shots at the bar are threatening Biffo, so instead of litigating their concerns, you chuck them both out. While the logic of a central capital was sound, the decision-making process was not. To determine where exactly in the central hinterlands the politicians would be forced to sail, the governor, rather than seek any public mandate, assembled a commission of three Australians to render their verdict. A brief digression. In their search, these men would have canvassed the remote, rocky south coast of Wellington. More than a century later, on one of these beaches, a scientist discovered a sea slug. This slug, less than half the size of a fingernail, lives deep in gravel, scraping rotting seaweed from the rocks for sustenance with its tiny jaws. It likely cannot see or hear anything happening on the surface. It is forever cloistered in a tiny world of ocean rubble. This slug was equally qualified to choose New Zealand's capital city. One of the Australians, Francis Murphy, was a former sheep farmer turned politician, known for having few observable convictions. Joseph Docker, another politician, had been a surgeon and was once described as given to old fogeyism and a desire to retard rather than advance good legislation. Ronald Gunn, a prison warden turned botanist, was fondly remembered for his brilliant recall of the plant life of Tasmania. Respectable people of their time? Sure. Far-thinking urban planners? Certainly not. We might have more faith in their process if they'd written it down. What came to be the first commission of inquiry in New Zealand remains, to this day, the shortest. The three Australians' ruling came in the form of a two-page letter that briefly outlined their criteria, but gave no actual justification for why they chose Wellington. Because most of the listed criteria were harbour-related, Wellington's very good harbour, basically a sheltered inland lake, was likely the reason, combined with its central position. Few of their criteria concerned the basic livability of the place, the steep topography, the villainous wind gusts, the suspiciously frequent natural disasters. And why would it? They didn't have to live there. Today, our criteria would be different. A capital city doesn't need beautiful forests to raise for timber or a need to defend itself from a seaward invasion. It might not need a harbour at all. Instead, we might prioritise resilience against disasters, the capacity for urban growth or even a pleasant climate. The centrality argument may have made sense then, but flight has made geographic distance irrelevant. Today, most New Zealanders live north of Tauamutu, meaning Wellington is a considerable distance from the country's population centre. The argument in 1865 was tenuous. Now, even that doesn't apply. 
Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. In the human race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. Unless you've been in it, it's it's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers, you don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt abrasive doctor who I had you know had not seen before who delivered the news just like you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby. The human race where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life. I feel like I nearly missed out and I got to do it and so I feel really lucky so it's been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash the human race or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevate. Over a decade ago, Wellington was labelled the coolest little capital in the world. The city shrugged off the compliment and we never heard about it again. Just kidding. It's worth remembering how this phrase came about. It was a subheading in a listicle produced by Australian guidebook slingers Lonely Planet, which named Wellington the fourth best city in the world to visit in 2011. The comment was widely covered in the media and gained a second life when then US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who happened to visit Wellington the following week, repeated the phrase in a press conference. The comment clearly resonated, and there's nothing wrong with celebrating your city. Some of us have never been described as cool. It must be exhilarating. But here is the cynical take. Lonely Planet's business model relies on flattery. Just a week later, another of its listicles said Auckland should be the capital city of New Zealand. In 2018, it hedged its own description by calling Wellington one of the coolest little capitals in the world. In 2021, Auckland topped the list of best cities to visit, and few people cared. But Wellington, in 2011, treated this listicle entry like a religious text inscribed on a stone tablet. The head of the city's tourism agency said the designation comes with it responsibilities, with all the sincerity of a student asked to look after the class while the teacher nips off to the bathroom. As a marketing consultant recently told Wellington NZ, cool cities don't insist on their own coolness. This speaks to a broader characteristic of Wellington, one that champions pithy myth-making above competency. It is even imprinted on the city's own coat of arms, which includes the Latin phrase Suprema Asitu, Supreme by Position. Since the beginning, when the New Zealand company lied to colonists about its flat land and banana-growing climate, Wellington has failed to deliver core services while insisting upon its own excellence. There was understandable outrage when, a few years after Coolest Little Capital, then-Prime Minister John Key produced a less flattering moniker for Wellington. Dying. He quickly walked it back, submitting in its place, under sustained pressure. Dying wasn't the best description. It implies an uncontrollable force happening against one's will. I'd offer a different word. Languishing. By a host of metrics, Wellington's economy is struggling relative to other cities. 
despite being generously subsidised by the public service that provides a pool of well-paying jobs tasked by people who, in many cases, are forced to live there to work. The Wellington region was recently overtaken by Canterbury as the second largest regional GDP. In the last five years, Wellington City's annual economic growth has slowed, falling behind the rest of New Zealand. Data from Infometrics shows that Wellington's average annual GDP growth since 2017 has been lower than many other New Zealand cities. That's despite a 26% increase in the GDP of its largest industry, public administration, largely due to the pandemic. Wellington's productivity is lower now than it was five years ago, and between 2021 and 2022, the city lost proportionally more of its population to outward migration than any territorial authority except for the Buller District on the West Coast. It's not that Wellington is an economic basket case, or dying. It's just falling behind other cities that face the same macroeconomic conditions and without the capital city subsidy. This may not be permanent. Wellington's poor economic performance is a fairly recent phenomenon. More problematic is the city's culture. Wellington, too often, chooses to be small and hostile. It guards its position like Smorg, the miserly dragon from The Hobbit, who the city appropriately celebrates with a statue in the airport. A housing crisis has afflicted most of the country, but it has been most acute in Wellington, the city founded by property speculators. Wellington City is currently in the bottom quarter of all New Zealand territorial authorities for consenting new housing per head of population, worse than any city except Dunedin. It has been particularly dire in the last two years. Nationally, new housing in 2021 and 2022 boomed to the highest point in nearly half a century. During that boom, Wellington City was one of 10 local authorities out of 68 to have dropped its consenting rate for new housing. Even this miserable effort is inflated by building on the city's outskirts. In the last 12 months, the inner-city suburbs of Thorndon, Arrow Valley, Wellington Central and Kelburn, with a combined population of more than 14,000, approved between them just 10 new dwellings. Yes, Wellington is not blessed with open green space. It cannot unfurl a sprawling empire into the river plains like the Selwyn district in Canterbury. But it chose a district plan that allowed a jumble of single-storey townhouses on prime central city land. A majority of councillors didn't need to sabotage the city's spatial plan by putting up barriers to high-density housing along a train line where many of those people were expected to go. This engineered housing shortage has grossly inflated rents and house prices, predominantly affecting young people, and it's a self-reinforcing problem. Housing is unaffordable, so demand drops. Demand is low, so there's no need to increase housing supply. Round and round we go, while the next generation of Wellingtonians are blown between damp gullies in search of a rundown villa they can't afford to rent. It is simply impossible for many people to live comfortably in the capital city. Those who can will pay to address decades of infrastructure neglect. When Wellington became the capital, it was routinely damned as the dirtiest town in the colony, historian Redmer Yisko wrote in his biography of the city. That was due to the raw sewage washing through the streets, which was such a threat to public health, it was blamed for killing Littleton MP George McFarlane, 
who died of a gastro illness a year into his first term. Today, Wellington's creaking water infrastructure is equally infamous. It manifests through poos and wheeze erupting onto the city's streets or into the harbour with comical regularity and looming water restrictions after the wettest winter in recent memory. Like the economy, this could change. They are not issues unique to Wellington either, but the capital's failures on these fronts have compounded over many years and have coalesced in a way that makes the city unaffordable and hostile to new people. A capital city doesn't need to be a glittering metropolis. It doesn't even need to be cool. But it does need to provide housing and opportunity for the public service workers and their families who are obliged to live there. If being little and cool and brimming with character is what Wellington wants, fine. A city has a right to choose its own destiny. But the rest of the country doesn't need to subsidise it. A city that won't accommodate its share of the growing population does not need a disproportionate amount of transport funding. A city that sees its network of mouldy villas as a living museum does not need to papa, which holds the nation's actual treasures, as well. While some issues may be temporary, one is not. Wellington is not merely at risk of earthquakes. It is the most earthquake hazard exposed area in a seismically active country. Wellington City's boundary contains at least seven active faults, one of which is the Hikurangi subduction zone, capable of producing not only one of the largest earthquakes experienced by human beings, but also a large tsunami. The Wellington Fault, which trails just behind Parliament, is also capable of producing a large earthquake with significant ground shaking. These faults are statistically unlikely to generate large earthquakes in the next 50 years. The most likely is the Hikurangi, with a 1 in 4 chance in the next 50 years. The Wellington Fault has a 10% likelihood in the next 100 years. But earthquakes will happen. There is no scientific reason that two highly active faults will stop producing large earthquakes because we arrived and quietly hoped they wouldn't. If the timeline for Wellington remaining the capital is open-ended, the likelihood of our capital being affected by earthquakes becomes inevitable. This isn't unique, and we can point to other capitals exposed to earthquake risk. Tokyo, Mexico City, Tehran, Bucharest, and say Wellington, the soon-to-be fourth-largest city in the world's 126th-largest country, which requires seven years to build a library and wants to give heritage protection to a disused oil tank, would bounce back from disaster like Tokyo would. In reality, a large Wellington Fault earthquake could take out the already fragile train network for nearly three years. It would have catastrophic economic consequences, even with significant investment in resilience. There is less modelling about damage from a large tsunami, but based purely on suspicion, a tsunami would be economically undesirable. Even the state sees this as a problem. In 2014, the government produced a plan for the continuity of Parliament in the event of a disaster in Wellington. It involves helicoptering the politicians to a naval base in Devonport, on Auckland's North Shore, where they'll be issuing diktats while crammed shoulder to shoulder in the Navy gym. There's a simple way to avoid this. If we were choosing where to put our seat of government, most of us would not opt for the most geologically imperiled city available to us. Now, thanks to more than a century of scientific advances, we have information that early capital city deciders did not. 
In the 1860s, the choice was constrained by many factors which no longer exist. Today, it could be anywhere. Like some countries, we could build an entirely new city, or we could reward an existing community with the generous economic boost of housing the public service. There are reasons to be cautious about traditional alternatives. Auckland has struggled to accommodate existing growth and Christchurch is likely too far from the population centre to be viable. The best choice, on paper, is Hamilton. It will overtake Wellington as the third largest city and is 90 minutes from both the country's economic centre and its largest port. It is connected to both, and Wellington, by rail. It has accommodated population growth on its fringes and its airport has room to expand. Its quake hazard risk is low, but not zero. It is already the closest city to the median person and it's more ethnically diverse than Wellington City, which has become increasingly European. Moving the capital would be expensive. But what better way to recognise present-day Aotearoa than a nation-building project to transform Kirikiriroa into a modern, prosperous capital that is not merely supreme by position, but supreme by ambition? That was why Wellington should no longer be the capital of New Zealand on The Long Read From Stuff, written by Charlie Mitchell, read by Dominic Harris and produced by Jen Black and me, Michael Wright. This episode was edited by Connor Scott. If you're listening via The Stuff website, you can hear this story and many more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual podcast apps. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz/support.